Hello and welcome to WRI's Big Ideas Into Action podcast. I'm Nicholas Walton. And in this special edition of the podcast, we say goodbye to the Institute's president and CEO, Andrew Steer, as he heads off to take charge of the Bezos Earth Fund at a critical time for the planet. Climate change is getting worse. Carbon emissions are still rising. So why would one have hope for the future? As it happens, Andrew says there are excellent reasons for having hope for the future from communities, consumers, companies, and from those at the top. Real leaders want to be part of history. They want to seize difficult problems. It's now eight and a half years since Andrew Steer took charge of the World Resources Institute. But now he's heading off to take charge of the Bezos Earth Fund, how does he see the struggle to fix the climate, the ocean, the forests, cities and all other aspects of the environment? He sat down to tell all in a final interview with WRI's Vice President of Communications, Lawrence MacDonald. One of the things that strikes people here in WRI, and I think everybody who meets you, is your incredible optimism in the face of global challenges that can be really daunting. Uh, foremost among those, of course, the rapidly closing window of opportunity to avoid a climate catastrophe. What makes you optimistic that the world can respond to these challenges in the time that we have? Well, let's be clear, um, we're losing the battle. Climate change is getting worse. Carbon emissions are still rising. We are still losing nature at an astonishing rate. Biodiversity is being lost a thousand times more rapidly than the natural rate. So why would one have hope for the future? Look, when we met in Paris in 2015 and struck the deal for climate, we would not have imagined that just five and a half years later that a hundred countries accounting for 53% of total emissions would be committed to move towards net zero emissions by the middle of the century. We would not have imagined that 1,500 major international companies would have made the same decision, nor 10,000 cities and towns have also committed to net zero. So too, we now have $20 trillion of assets under management that are committed to move their entire portfolio to net zero by the middle of the century. So there's been an amazing transition just in the last five years. And the question is why? <laughs> well, there are lots of reasons. One is technology has been amazing. Prices have come down much more rapidly than anticipated. We now have an entirely new generation of young people that are demanding change. They are not willing to keep going the same way. But we've also had a, an incredible intellectual revolution going on. The economics of trade-offs, where we used to think about it would be nice to operate on climate change, but actually it will cost us in terms of jobs and investment and competitiveness. That is behind us now. The best economists in the world, the best politicians in the world now know that smart climate action leads to more economic efficiency, it drives new technology, and it lowers risks. And, and this is good not only for the economy in the future, it's good for society as well as environment. So we've seen some pretty interesting transitions just in the last five years, and that's what gives me hope. Now, we absolutely have not crossed the positive tipping point yet. But, um, you know, the fact that, for example, General Motors has now announced that it will sell no internal combustion engine small vehicles after 2035. I mean, that would have been unthinkable. We now have a president of the United States that's committed to fully green electric power by 2035. So there's a lot to be optimistic about. 
But the optimism needs to lead to action. If we do not act decisively in this decisive year, as we move into this decisive decade, we will fail. I want to turn now to your experience here at the World Resources Institute. In the nine years that you have been, nearly nine years that you've been leading us, you've changed WRI a lot, but WRI also changed you. And together we developed an approach that we sometimes call a secret sauce. And I wonder if you could tell me briefly what you consider to be the the key ingredients in that sauce. When I I left the World Bank to join the World Resources Institute, I I imagined that uh, I would be joining a top research outfit, uh, which turned out to be true, by the way. I thought I'd spend a lot of time reviewing papers and chairing seminars, advancing knowledge, which has been true, but that's only a very small part of what we've been doing in WRI. And what I've learned is that actually decision makers, whether they are heads of state or ministers, or CEOs of corporations, or leaders of communities, or mayors of cities, they actually value an institution that can come alongside them and can do what we have learned to do quite well at the World Resources Institute. Our motto, as you know, is count it, change it, scale it. And that is a special source that works very well. Count it means you've got to bring the best data. You've got to have the best maps You've got to have data which is up to date. It's got to be presented in a user-friendly way. It's got to be linked to research and analysis and design. But then you've got to demonstrate that design works on the ground in cities and corporations. But then, and this is the really important point, you've got to figure out how to scale it. And what I've learned is you can't scale it as an individual organization. You can only scale if you understand the new governance of the world, which is multi-stakeholder. Yes, we need governments, but we also need corporations. We need the financial sector. We need multilateral institutions. We need communities. We need NGOs. We need citizens. We need scientists. And putting together the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle in a sophisticated, supportive, humble, committed, energetic way is what is required. And we're seeing that in some of the amazing transitions that are starting to operate. And so for us at the World Resources Institute, we operate in the research level, but then we operate on the ground in countries around the world. We operate at the national level and we operate at the global level. And there has to be a two-way conversation between all of these parts. And, and for me, the great joy of working at WRI is to see our 1,500 brilliant staff around the world working out of our 12 international offices, whether they're working in a city, helping a, a, a local government or whatever, or they're, they're doing sophisticated research with a university, they're all talking to each other. And the practice is informing the knowledge and the knowledge is informing the practice and the practice on the ground is informing practice at the national level and the global level. Imagine all those arrows and the overall impact can be very substantial. So it's it's a thrilling experience. You mentioned these multi-stakeholder coalitions, and of course, everyone is unique. Um, They are all complex, but you mentioned a few groups of stakeholders. If you're willing, could you talk first about what you've learned about engagement with community groups, including NGOs, um, groups on the ground, people who are uh, maybe normally excluded from decision making? Yeah, that's a, a very, very important starting point, Lawrence. If you look at how funding is spent for the most part in our space, 
only 5% actually reaches those who are best equipped to make decisions. And those are local communities if it comes to something like adaptation, for example. And so what we've tried to do, again, with many partners, is to shift that percentage. Take, for example, landscape restoration. So the big story is, how do you restore 100 million hectares of land in Africa? It would have a phenomenal effect, not only make soils more fertile and more resilient, not only enables you to manage water well, but it also brings carbon down from the atmosphere into the soil, into the trees, into the bushes, into the crops. So that's the big story. The question is, though, how do you do it? Governments matter, but who really matters? Who really matters are the community groups who actually know their own ecology, their own agronomic practices, and so on. So our teams in Africa or in India or Indonesia working with local community groups, it's a beautiful thing to watch, actually. But until we have this mindset change away from the technocratic, by the way, we do need technocratic solutions, but towards the human recognizing its communities make a difference. And so our so-called governance team has been working with communities in Latin America, indigenous communities, showing that if you actually give legal tender and the ability to protect that legal right to land, to indigenous people, community land, deforestation will fall by 90%. That's nine zero percent And you'll be able to have sustainable livelihoods. When one really puts on one's shoes, goes into remote areas, talks to local people, does serious analysis that both requires ability to engage with local people, but also have the best satellite data to do the most sophisticated analysis. That's the kind of thing you can find. Going, uh, if you will, sort of up the food chain, what are your thoughts about these multilateral organizations? They're big, big organizations, but if they were highly efficient, the world would probably be in a better situation than it is. They're very big institutions. They have some very, very high quality people in terms of analytical capacity and practical capacity. Sometimes the way they're organized makes the whole add up to less than the sum of the parts. But that's where you need good leadership. We need them. Multilateral approaches are generally preferable to bilateral approaches, but there's room for both of them. We've been very involved in the Green Climate Fund. We rejoice in the fact that that exists. We would love to see uh, less politics, quite frankly. The issues are too urgent to allow political concerns and ambitions drive policy decisions. What is really amazing at the moment is that we're seeing some of the macroeconomic institutions showing amazing progress. I mean, what the IMF has done, first under Christine Lagarde and now under Kristalina Georgieva, is absolutely amazing. And so too, for example, I mean, look at the European Central Bank, what they are doing, some very exciting things, the European Investment Bank as well. And the World Bank, of course, is, is the granddaddy of them all and is also now starting to up its game again in climate. You're listening to WRI's Big Ideas Into Action podcast in an episode dedicated to the insights and experiences of our outgoing CEO and president, Andrew Steer. I want to turn now to the private financial sector. There's a lot of talk about green investing, um, sustainable investing, ESG filters. 
my sense is that this is shifting within WRI. We talk about moving not the billions, but the trillions, but that a lot of the trillions are still invested in the old economy. What are your thoughts about how we can get money out of destructive sectors like oil and gas and coal and into the sectors that we need, including landscape restoration, renewable energy, livable cities, follow the money. The money is not yet leading where it needs to go, or maybe it is. What do you think? It's not yet leading where it needs to go, but it's starting to move in quite a good way. You know, when I, when I did a PhD in finance, uh, you know, a hundred years ago, if you had said to us or our professors, so the financial sector has a role to play in addressing climate change, we, we would have said, you know, what are you smoking? The financial sector has no role in solving problems. All we do in the financial sector is allocate according to return and risk in an efficient way. That's our job. And we honestly believed that finance was, if you like, neutral. Well, it turned out that actually finance wasn't neutral at all. Finance was fundamentally opposed to success. Why? Because it's very short term in its outlook. And it's very conservative. And if you're very conservative, you tend to finance things you've financed before. And they're, they're usually coal power plants. You don't want to invest in something you've never invested for before. These two things combined together with a total lack of knowledge about the real risks that are occurring due to climate change or nature loss, for example, meant that the financial sector was massively negative. Now what's happened is really wonderful. You've got a group of financial regulators and central banks that are now saying, actually, our job is to think about risk. That's what a financial manager does. Well, we're very good at looking at risks of interest rate changes or recessions or trade embargoes. What about risks that potentially could be a lot more, i.e. climate risk? And by the way, we're also supposed to look at future returns and, and macro stability. So too, climate affects that. So you've had this amazing development just in the last five years where the IMF, where the Bank of England, the People's Bank of China, the European Investment Bank and bankers around the world are starting to say, my goodness me, we've been missing the boat on this. And then another amazing development is that the notion that, well, it would be very nice to invest in green investments, but we would get smaller yields turns out to be absolutely not true. Turns out that actually, if you invest in companies with high ESG, you get higher yields. And this has been a revolution that's been proved empirically. Our co-chair, David Blood, who leads a generation asset management, you know, has one of the finest returns of any fund in the world. And that's why you now get a Larry Fink, a BlackRock saying, for heaven's sake, guys, let's really think about a reallocation of capital based upon climate risk as well as all the other risks. And that's why you get the 20 trillion that is committed to net zero. Now, that's 20 trillion out of about 120 trillion of total assets. So we're only just beginning. But my goodness me, we're starting to head in the right direction. And how cool it is now that the Secretary General appointed a special envoy for climate finance, who's Mark Carney, who was governor of the Bank of England, you know, who's driving this notion forward. I want to ask you about the non-financial corporate sector. And here in WRI, we have, as you know well, a program that encourages companies to commit to reduce their emissions. We've shifted from doing good to doing enough, getting them to measure that. We've also launched into a dialogue with them about bringing their lobbying and their political influence in line with their stated goals of sustainability and climate action. 
it's still a minority of companies that's interested in that. What do we do to get them to be more part of the solution? Look, there has been a problem that was very common some years ago, which is that CEOs would love to give speeches that were very impressive, but their internal operations didn't really reflect those speeches and their lobbying activities absolutely didn't reflect it. We then had an era where, where the best CEOs were giving speeches and their internal operations were starting to reflect it, but the associations that they were part of, the business associations, the manufacturers associations, and the chambers of commerce were absolutely in the wrong place. Now what they're doing is they're starting to say, wait a minute, this is not consistent. I mean, the good news is that we're actually seeing a change. Maybe climate change does need to be a priority. Why? Well, because our businesses will suffer if we don't. And we're going to see a radical change. And that has to be very good. And for us at the World Resources Institute, it's been a privilege to co-run the Science-Based Targets Initiative, which basically says, if you are a leading company, you can sign up and say, here's my long-term goal. It's a 1.5 degree world I'm aiming for. And here is the path that I'm going to be on over the next four decades. And here's my five-year plan and my 10-year plan. And it's going to be totally and utterly accountable and transparent. Year after year, we're going to report. And now there are nearly 1,500 companies, major companies that have signed up for this. And it's, um, it's a great blessing to see this kind of leadership. And a very funny paradox occurred about two years ago when the IPCC came out with its report saying that actually limiting temperature to two degrees is not good enough. We need to limit it to 1.5, which is going to be much, much more difficult. And a lot of people said this is really worrying because leaders will back off. They'll say this is too difficult and they'll run for the hills. You know what happened? The opposite. A new generation of leaders stepped up. And the question is why? And it's because real leaders, real leaders want to be part of history. They want to seize difficult problems, and they see that there is a better future ahead, which, of course, is what we at the World Resources Institute believe very deeply. Andrew, it's evident from your answers that you really love WRI. Uh, so that brings me to my final question. Why did you decide to accept the invitation to lead the Bezos Earth Fund and leave us? <laughs> Well, look, um, I do love WRI. Um, it's been an incredible honor for eight and a half years now to sort of be at the helm. Um, I take no credit for our success, but what we have done is built an unbelievable team. Um, we've got incredible young people with amazing initiative who are changing us and making us better as an institution. But we also have a, an incredible stock of, of senior management. Our, our international offices are run by great people. Our executive team is superb. Our management team is wonderful. So, so my view is that after eight and a half years, it's good to leave an organization that is going to become even stronger in the future. So I leave extremely confident about the future of WRI. I'm really proud that my good friend and colleague, Manish Bapner will be the interim president and CEO. Manish has been with us for 12 years now. He has helped drive every single initiative that we've taken. And so who better to take over? Now, that's not why I left WRI, by the way. I didn't, I didn't want to leave WRI. It was extremely difficult and painful. But my goodness me, we also know how important it is to have serious resources that can be injected in a speedy, thoughtful, 
analytically wise and humble way. And that's what the Bezos Earth Fund and Jeff Bezos, you know, very generously has put $10 billion into this Earth Fund, which will focus mainly on climate, but also on nature. And of course, they're totally linked. And what Jeff has said is, look, I want this to be as transformative as possible. You know, I want us to think really boldly. I want us to support in a humble way those great organizations that can deliver. But I also want to be out there. And if there are sort of new initiatives, we want to be there helping to make them work. And I want to do it in a way that really focuses on social justice. Um, and it will operate here in the United States, but it'll also operate around the world. Well, how how cool is that? I mean, what an incredible privilege. So so it, for me, it's a great honor to have been asked to do this. And so that's why I, I'm looking forward to it. And uh, we all need to repot from time to time, don't we? And I'm uh, I'm sure I will benefit from from all of this. So thanks so much. Thank you, Andrew. And uh, we and many others will be watching uh, with interest your repotting at the uh, Bezos uh, Earth Fund. Uh, thank you for joining us. This has been the World Resources Institute Big Ideas Podcast. I've been speaking with Andrew Steer. Um, I say with some sadness, the outgoing president and CEO of WRI. Um, I'm Lawrence McDonald. Thanks for listening. <laughs>